to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Today, I'm talking about what it's like to be a caregiver. It's estimated that about 17% of Americans are caregivers to another adult with either an illness or a disability. That means a significant amount of you are helping someone else, like an elderly parent with dementia or a partner with cancer. Yet we don't talk much about the stress of caregiving. And many people who are caregivers feel kind of alone and isolated as they try to navigate all the complexities that come with being a caregiver. Finding help, accessing resources, and managing day-to-day life gets really complicated when you're not just managing your own affairs, but when you're also responsible to help somebody else. Years ago, I had a therapy client who was this really kind man who had decided that he was going to help his friend who had ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. As the friend's health deteriorated, my client stepped up and helped him even more. His friend used to say, I'm sorry to be a burden on you. My client would say, Actually, it's a burden I welcome. He didn't want to deny that it was a huge responsibility to help care for his friend. He acknowledged it, but he also made it clear that there was no other place he'd rather be than right there helping him. Eventually, the friend had to go to a nursing home, and my client still showed up faithfully to visit him and help take care of him. In the therapy office, he acknowledged how difficult it was, but he also said that not helping his friend would be even more painful. I think that's what a lot of caregivers experience. Yes, it's hard. But it'd be harder not to be right there helping a loved one who needs help. So today I'm talking to actor Nathan Kress. He's been in lots of TV shows, but the one that he's probably best known for is his role as Freddie Benson on iCarly, which recently underwent a reboot. What you might not know about Nathan is that he's a caregiver to his wife. She has endometriosis, and there are times when she's doing well and times when she struggles to manage her symptoms. Nathan recently began talking about what it's been like for him to be a caregiver to his partner. Some of the things he shares on the show today are how he manages his stress, why he started talking about this in the first place, and how being vulnerable is helping him as well as other caregivers out there. So whether you're a caregiver or you know someone who is, stick around to hear Nathan's story. And make sure you stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist take. It's the part of the show where I'll break down Nathan's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Nathan Kress on how to stay mentally strong when you're a caregiver. Nathan Kress, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here. So congrats on the iCarly reboot. I hear not only are you starring in it, but you're also doing some producing and directing. Yeah, yeah. Wearing a lot of hats, especially this season. I started directing um, last season uh, for one episode and then doing two this season and then also, yeah, producing this season this time around too. So a lot of, lot more involvement than than there was and certainly a lot more than, you know, on the original version of the show. And and that's something that I've really enjoyed now as a, as a grown-up, getting to have a little bit more of the... Uh, a little bit more of the say in, in this character and in, in the course of the show. And it's just been so fun having a real collaborative environment on that set between me and Miranda and Jerry and the writing team. Um, everyone's just working really hard to lend their own perspectives, but also kind of have a meeting of the minds uh, in, in the middle and, and look at it through this framework of 
what do the fans want and how can we make that into a cohesive show? How long had you guys been talking about a reboot? How long was this in the works? You know, I don't know when it really first started. For me, I got the first call in October, but I think the first rumblings had been right around when the lockdown started in like uh, March or April, maybe in February. So it was, I think there was a lot that they needed to figure out before it even got down to the point of asking if I wanted to be involved. Um, because a lot of things probably could have gone wrong that would have just made the whole thing go away in general. Um, so it was a long, it was a long process. And then I think in January of 2021, I saw the first draft of the script. And then after that, it was only a couple months later that we were in production. So it happened once it started going, it started going pretty quick. What were you doing up until that point? Or what did you think you were going to be doing until you got that phone call? Well, I... So after the show ended in 2012, um, I had been invited to direct um, because, uh, you know, I, I think when that conversation happened, the, the general line was, you've obviously been paying attention as an actor. You're thinking from the perspective of behind the scenes. You're helping directors when they have problems. And for that reason, we think you'd be a good director. So if you ever want to try it, you know, you, you know, th this crew loves you and you could totally direct, you know, a show in the future. And I went, <laughs> sure. Okay. With zero intention whatsoever of doing that, because I wanted to be an actor, not a director. And I had it very set in my mind, what I was going to do with my life. And ultimately it got to the point where, you know, I was still acting and everything, but I realized I had to try it just one time, just to know for sure that I hated it and that I would just never have to do it again. And it just so happened that I ended up really, really liking it and, and pushing myself to do it. It was by far the most stressful thing I've ever done, ever. And it's so funny because when you're in production, <laughs> you kind of have to get out of your head a little bit and realize that you are having fun because you can get really caught up in the stresses and the struggles of it. But then as soon as the episode's done, without fail, you look back on it and go, oh my gosh, that was so much fun. I can't wait to do that again. So um, that was something that I was doing from 2014 all the way up through 2020. And then the lockdown happened. Um, so it was, uh, that was kind of starting to become more of a passion for me, even in a sense, than, than acting for a while. Um, and, and I was really looking forward to sort of expanding that out. And then, of course, the world stopped and we had to just sit around and wait to see what would happen next. And then lo and behold, I, I certainly wasn't expecting the next thing to be iCarly, but here we are. Right? Comes all the way back to the beginning. I love that you said that you tried it just because sort of to prove that you hated it. Yeah. Um, I'm a social worker. And in the social work field, they'll often say, pick the population or the type of job that you know you don't want to do. Whether it's you work in a school, you work in a, a prison, you work with a nursing home. There's so many things you can do as a social worker. And they'll say, as an intern, pick the one that you think you want to work with least. Mm -hmm. And then nine times out of 10, people find out, actually, I actually like this. I thought I was going to hate it, but it turns out to be something that I enjoy a lot more than I thought I did. So I think that that's a good principle in life. Sometimes when we think we're going to say, hate something, try it anyway. Yeah. I think what it really came down to, at least for me, and, and I don't know, I don't know how it really pertains to social work, but for me, it was because it was the thing I was most scared of. And yeah. that, that was why I thought I was going to hate it was I didn't want the pressure. I didn't want to fail in front of 200 crew members that knew me. 
um, I didn't want to fall flat on my face. And so I just didn't even want to try because it wasn't worth the risk to my, my pride, my sense of career accomplishment, um, and forcing myself to stretch and be able to be vulnerable and take that risk was necessary. Otherwise I would have just stayed in this acting box forever. And I would have never, you know, forced myself out of it. I'm a big fan of my comfort zone, Amy. Um, I like my comfort zone. I don't want to leave my comfort zone. And that was one of the first times in my adult life that I really had to get out of it. Um, and luckily it, it really paid off and it has been a whole new branch of my career that I have truly, truly loved and, and I'm excited to keep going on. So speaking of stepping outside your comfort zone, you did a project with one of our former guests, Justin Baldoni. Ah, yes. Which yes. we love Justin on this show. Me but too. Can you talk a little bit about this project that you did? Yeah. So, um, the, the project is called man enough. Um, Justin's been doing it for a while and, and he tackles, uh, different topics of, of manhood and sort of deconstructing what that is and, and how it has changed and how to reframe it in our, in our minds. And the episode that I did was centered around caretaking, um, which can, boy, that can mean a ton of different things. It can be um, in your family relationships, parent to child. It can be your um, spouse partner relationships. It can be a uh, child to parent, you know, as they head into older age or um, being a person being taken care of. And so we, they, the whole episode was just this, uh, this very incredibly delicious dinner um, that we were all invited to enjoy together. And, and each person kind of had a different perspective of what it was, you know, what caretaking meant to them. And, um, I didn't realize just how bottled up I was about my perspective on caretaking until literally, I think almost everybody else had talked. They'd sort of gone through their background and, and their process. And I think I was the last one and I think Justin said just something very simple, like, so Nathan, how about you? How are you doing? And I just started crying. <laughs> um, and I, it hit me in that moment. Wow. I didn't realize that maybe I wasn't doing so good. Um, or that there was just things that I wasn't processing and that me as a, hulking macho man who was taught to compartmentalize and compress and and put these things away because they're not they're not manly enough um and and you should just buckle down and deal with it those were all things that i was still feeling i just wasn't talking with anybody about them and all it took was someone just truly not not in the casual flippant so hey what's up how are you way but the how are you way. As soon as that avenue was opened up for me, everything just started flailing out with incredible speed and intensity. Um, so that was, a, that was a really great night. Um, I, I processed a lot. And I'm pretty sure I was the only one who cried, but that's okay. You know, I'm, I'm an actor. I have to be very in touch with my emotions after all. That's why we love Justin on the show, because he was talking about, about that and about his book. And uh, the difficulties that men have with sharing their feelings. So I'm so glad that you had that opportunity to do that. And up until then, had you really talked to anybody about your experience? I know that you've sometimes had to help out your wife. Yeah. Um, so for, for 
context um, to explain that a little bit. My wife has a condition called endometriosis, um, which is incredibly common. Um, by some estimates, uh, it affects one in 10 women across the world. So we're talking about a lot of people dealing with this. And essentially, it's where um, uterine tissue uh, grows outside of the uterus, um, and it turns into scar tissue, lesions. Um, as it progresses in various stages, it gets onto other internal organs, and it becomes almost a biological glue. Um, and it sticks to muscles. It, it uh, ravages your entire body, and it travels like a cancer, and there is no cure for it. Um, currently, you know, they're still obviously working on that. So fingers crossed. Um, but it's incredibly common and it's incredibly painful. Um, for some women, it can be minor for some, it can be absolutely disabling. Um, and I would say my, my wife somewhere in the middle, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily affect her every moment of the day. Um, but when it's bad, it's bad, especially, you know, the, the biggest time for most women is around their period. So every month there's just a several day stretch where they are down completely and, and pretty much non-functional. And, you know, that was something that I, I knew, you know, before, before we got married, as we were getting ready to, um, you know, as we were getting to know each other, I was, I was aware of it, but I didn't think at that point that I had realized how much it was just going to affect everything, you know? You can't even make plans. The amount of times we had to bail out on people just because of this stinking disease, would, uh, you know, it, it, it invades every part of your life. And so I think it slowly and subtly worked its way into every facet of our life together in a way that I didn't even really notice until someone really asked the question. So to answer your question, no, I wasn't talking to anybody. For one, because I didn't really have anybody in my life to relate that to. No one else that I knew had a you know, wife with endometriosis. So there wasn't really much that anyone could understand. And it's a very frustrating disease because it's invisible. A yeah. lot of people, for so many women, they'll go to their doctor and say they're having all these issues. And their doctor will say, you're just stressed. You know, mm -hmm. they'll, They will dismiss it as some kind of psychosomatic hormonal imbalance, prescribe anti-anxiety medication and Tylenol, you know, and, and scoot them out the door for the next patient. So it's infuriating because it's hard to make people understand the disease when they haven't actually encountered it. But then on the few times where it was almost never men, because I feel like, you know, women often some, sometimes feel so isolated with their ability to talk about their health, um, especially uh, with with men, it just seems like there's kind of a disconnect there where a lot of men just don't want to hear about it, which is really unfortunate because it affects a lot. And it really would behoove them to know if they would just be willing to hear a little bit about it. Um, it's just, it's it's a disease that's hard for people to understand. So it is very isolating, not just for the women, but for the men who are involved enough to know about it and care about it. And it's hard to watch. You know, i I've been there for my wife when she's she can't make it out of the bathroom and she's writhing around on the floor with just there's just nothing you can do. There's no medication you can take. There's no, there's nothing. And you just have to be there with them. It's a scarring experience. Um and especially just relating to general issues about women's health, no one really seems to want to talk about it. So Right. 
it's it's hard. It's a weird it's a weird middle ground place to be. It's very hard to relate to people unless they're really at the forefront and currently dealing with it. And I, as a therapist, I find that other people when they're dealing with something, they're, when they're a caretaker, a couple of things happen. Sometimes whether they're caring for a parent or a child that has special needs, sometimes they don't tell their friends and family about it because it's sort of like, oh, it's just a private thing we're dealing with at home and they don't want to burden other people with the information or the, the troubles that they're going through. So they tend to grow more isolated and sometimes they'll come to therapy. And yeah. I'll notice when I say, how are you? Sometimes the first thing they'll do is they'll tell me about the person that they're caring for because all of their time and energy just goes into, well, so-and-so had a good week this week or we had a good day today mm. because it's almost like so much of their energy goes tied into that one thing that they're doing that they kind of lose sight of who they are and how to take care of themselves. Yeah, yeah, that's totally true. I, I definitely think that there's been there's been those moments where I frame how are you as just how are things you know, how, how, how is, how is your wife? How is, how is that progressing? And, um, you know, it was, it's discouraging when the answer is never really, Oh, good. She's good. You know, it's well, actually it's terrible, <laughs> you know, and, but, and, and to your point too, I, I don't know if it's just an American thing or a Western thing or a guy thing, but it also feels like when someone says, how are you? You're not allowed to say anything other than, oh, I'm good. How are you? You know, right. I'm, I'm great. Thanks for asking. You're no, it's like no one really wants to know how you are or not, because then it leads to a vulnerable, real conversation. Um, so I feel like we're sort of programmed now to just say, well, no matter what, just say, I'm, I'm good and, and leave it at that. Um, and I know that that was a big thing for me too. And that's why that man enough thing was different because we were, we were there knowing that we were all going through stuff. It wasn't just a casual conversation. We had sort of set the stage for saying, okay, this is, this is your space for a real, a real conversation. And, and that was, I think what, what set the tone for me and made me so instantly ready to say, not great, <laughs> you know, cause I would, I would never say that to just a bro who came over for a beer. You know, like that's just not, that's just not part of the the male mentality, you know. Uh, has anything changed for you then after opening up? Do you do anything differently now or does it change the way you see things? Obviously now you talk about this publicly. Yeah, I think that has been one of the, one of the best things is because of that public, you know, <laughs> public display of, uh, you know, breakdown, um, and the fact that my wife has become very open about it too, um, with her, with her struggles and, and, um, you know, on social media between the two of us, whenever we post about it or share about it, what has gotten me so much is seeing in the comments, so many people saying that they're dealing with it too. Um, and like I was saying before, it was really hard to deal with just in, daily life because we weren't really experiencing that many people who were dealing with it or who just were open enough to talking about how they're dealing with it. But through, through social media, through man enough, um, I got connected with so many people who were dealing with the exact same thing as me. And a lot of women who were saying, I don't know what to do for my husband because he's dealing with this and I can see it tearing him apart because he cares about me and he wants to fix it. Um, and he just can't. Um, that was one of the hardest things. It's like, you know, my dad was the same way. I'm the same way. We want to fix, 
You know, we don't want to sit and talk about it. We want to fix it. And this is currently an unfixable disease. So all you can do is sit and process it with other people and at the very least commiserate and know that you're not alone and that you're not isolated. There's a lot of other people that had to cancel on their friends last weekend too. And they're sitting at home going, who else is there? Because it just feels like I'm on this island, you know? So I look, I'm not a big fan of social media in general, but that's one of those examples of ways that it did really bring people together. And it kind of inspired me to go, okay, talking about this is creating a dialogue with other people. And it's letting people know, hey, this person that you, you know, watched as a kid, they're dealing with very real problems too. And it happens to be your problem. Um, I think it has kind of created this sort of, uh, I guess, family-like environment you know, of people who are going through similar struggles. And, and that has inspired me to want to be much more open about it and just do things like this. Like normally, I don't think I would just sit on a podcast and talk about how it makes me sad, you know? Right, right. But, but here we are. And, and I think a lot of that started with Man Enough and continued because the reaction to that was so strong. Um, and I identified so much with what people were saying. And it has made me want to just keep keep going with that because you know, especially as a guy, it just doesn't seem like something that people are willing to talk about. And I want to try to change that as best I can. There is this fear of when we share our issues with other people that we're either burdening other people or that we're drawing attention to ourselves. I don't know. There's all this weird stuff that comes up with admitting, no, I'm not okay, or this is what I'm going through. Yeah. But it's but I, it's rare that I ever hear somebody say, I wish I hadn't talked about that thing once I started talking about it. Mm-hmm. It's like it, other people could then get the courage to talk about what they're going through as well. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that, yeah, that was the other thing, you know, there would be not necessarily people saying, yeah, I have endometriosis, but it'll also just be, yeah, I have this condition. I have this syndrome and it has altered my life in very similar ways to what you're talking about. And I think that really is kind of a similar thing. And in a very loose sense, that's kind of been the motivation of the podcast that I started doing with, um, with my buddy, Brett, it was originally kind of centered around just two young dads who are dealing with young dad stuff, but young dads usually don't like talking about it. They just want to kind of say, yeah, you know, I'm good. I'm, I'm like, I got it all under control like my dad did. And so I'm just going to tough it out and deal with it. It's the same idea that you just, you have to be able to have people in your life that you can say, I'm dealing with this thing and, and them say, me too, me too. You're not alone. And, and not only that, but I just finished dealing with this and this is how I did it. Here's a suggestion for you, something that might, might help. Um, I think that creates a a layer of, of trust and relationship that a lot of people are missing. And that was kind of one of the things from just at least the dad perspective that we wanted to be able to, to lend. So I think the whole thing in general has just encouraged me to be willing to open up more and not have this big facade. You know, I think people in the industry, public figures and actors and celebrities and stuff, they have to present this image of perfection and that nothing bad happens in their life and that everything is just Instagram perfect. And, you know, you're not allowed to let people know that you're having real human issues. Um, I don't like that. I don't think that that's right. I don't think that that's fair. I think it's contributing to a lot of weird comparisons Mm -hmm. that people have where they say, oh, well, these famous people don't have any problems and I do have problems. So something's wrong with me. You know, that's not, that's not fair. That's not right. I feel like if we're going to be 
public figures and and if we're going to put out content about our lives in these grammable moments and all these Kodak snapshots of all the best parts, it's only fair that we talk about the issues and stuff that we're dealing with too. In my opinion, it's it's kind of a duty. And I think that's so important because we tend to, sometimes you're sitting at home doing laundry on a Saturday night and you look around and it looks like everybody on social media is out doing these exotic, wonderful things and mm-hmm. start to question like, gee, how come I'm not out there doing cool things? We have all these ideas about what everybody else's life is like. So by sharing real life, hey, we had to cancel our plans and we're not actually doing anything cool either. Mm-hmm. I think that's really powerful. It tells us all, yeah, we all have problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And And I've gotten largely, largely better at that. Um, to the point that now I just don't even like the grammable moments. I like, um, you know, poop and, uh, (laughs) and the ins and outs of diaper changes and, uh, dealing with mouthing off toddlers and, you know, all the, all the fun stuff that comes along with parenting. That's way more fun for me to talk about than a trip to Cabo. Do you ever have moments where you think, Oh, I shouldn't have shared that. Or you wake up the next day and think I said too much. Probably. Probably. I think the key for me is I try not to listen to the episodes after. I just record them and and let them post. And then, you know, the feedback is the feedback. Um, And I don't, honestly, I don't know if that's a good thing or not. I've probably overshared. I've actually almost definitely overshared. But eh, I don't know, man. It might just be worth it just to be able, just to have the conversation. I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe that'll come back to bite me at some point, but at least so far the reaction has been thank you. You know, for because I'm going through the exact same thing and it's really great to know that you're going through it too. Yeah, I guess the risk of oversharing is is what somebody I don't know, gets offended or somebody doesn't like what you say, but the risk of not sharing enough is that, you know, you're not authentic, you're not genuine and and what do you gain from not sharing it? Right, exactly. And you're not helping anybody anyway. All you're doing is contributing to that comparison game that's so toxic and can be literally deadly, you know, uh, with, with social media and distilled life and this persona that we're able to present to people. Um, you know, obviously, <laughs> there's a balance and I don't even know if I'm hitting it or not. Um, but I just think that at this point, the world is so fake online, injecting a little bit of reality into it, even if maybe it's a little bit too much reality, at the very least, it's refreshing. Now, did you and your wife have a conversation about, okay, let's make this public? Or is it something that just kind of happens slowly over time? Like the endometriosis thing specifically? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if there was ever necessarily a specific conversation. I def- I know that we never said, you know, we're going to keep this. We, we don't want anybody to know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was just maybe at the beginning, a question of like, do people need to know about this or not? You know, but then I think especially the more that we learned about it, because actually my wife didn't know that she had, she suspected that she had endometriosis, but that's how insidious the disease is. You can deal with all this stuff and do ultrasounds and imaging and all that stuff. The only way to actually know is to go in for exploratory surgery, have someone cut you open and see it for themselves. That's the only way. And so she didn't do that until after we were married. Um, Mm. So she was living with all of this stuff and saying, I'm pretty sure I have this, but no one's ever really confirmed it. Um, And so it was about a year into our marriage that it even was an official thing that we even knew to talk about it. Um, And 
very quickly after that, um, that was when she got pregnant for the first time. Um, and that sort of kicked off, I guess, kind of the, the beginning of us being sort of open on, on social media. And I really appreciate my wife for, you know, when she was doing social media posting, especially after the baby was born, it was a lot of stuff was not pretty, you know, it was, it was the, it was the not as fun side of, uh, of postpartum. Um, and I think that sort of just set the stage because it was around that time that the endometriosis conversation really came up and, you know, the things that she was posting, the feedback that she was getting, a lot of people saying that, that she was helping them cope with their own condition, um, was very, was very motivating. So I do think it was kind of a slow and steady thing. I don't think it was a, a reveal and we also weren't trying to hide it. I think it just inevitably sort of came up, especially when we started having miscarriages too. Mm. Um, that was because that's a big part of endometriosis is it affects fertility. And if you do get pregnant, it makes it harder to retain a pregnancy. So that was when it really started getting vulnerable, you know, was, was telling people about, about that and being willing to say, you know, Hey, this, this happens and it's devastating. But then again, it's the same thing. People would comment and say, we had a miscarriage too. We had five miscarriages, you know, and it, it just helps to know someone who's going through it as well. So every step of the way, there's always been that group of people who got something out of it, even if it was just a little bit of comfort and relief, you know, knowing that they had somebody out there who they knew who was going through similar issues. Yeah. Uh, I guess one last question for you then. How do you take care of yourself as you, you obviously have this very busy life between the TV show and your podcast and being a dad and, and helping out your wife sometimes? How do you manage to take time to take care of yourself? Um, yeah, I think uh, that's a great question and one that I'm still working on. Um, I think my time management is, uh, is vital, making sure that you are taking time. Like for me, I do my absolute best to have my, my quiet time, my reading time in the morning, um, just to be away, be in the quiet, pray, start the day, do it right. And those days are the ones that go the best. Um, when I don't, I am behind the eight ball all day long. I feel like I'm just trying to catch up. Um, so one of, one of the best things that I started really trying to do was, you know, we have our daughter on a little bit of a clock where she doesn't come out until a certain time. So I know if I set my alarm for 45 minutes before that, it's going to be quiet in the house. So I think it was hard for me because I'm not a morning person, but, but challenging myself to wake up earlier and not just get every possible minute of sleep, but actually sacrifice a little bit of that so that I can have some quiet to calibrate the day and really um, prepare myself and settle myself uh, has been really, really important and has made a huge difference since I started doing it um, with my wife just in the last few months. So highly recommend, even if you're not a morning person, try out the earlier morning thing because it really does make a difference. Yeah. Putting time out for yourself, that's an investment, right? So many people say, well, I, I, don't, I can't do it. I don't have time for it. But when you make time for it, your day just gets better, right? Yep. Absolutely. No question. And I was very skeptical at first. I was like, how is getting less sleep better for me? That's exactly how. And the other thing is you start realizing how little the things that kept you up the night before really matter. Watch mm. one less episode of Ted Lasso, you know, like get give yourself the time to sleep too, because you realize how not that important that part is when you're able to have a great day because you started it the right way rather than trying to comfort yourself with potato chips and TV, you know? Yes. 
changes Absolutely. it changes a lot when you start it the right way. It does. Well, Nathan Cress, thanks for sharing your wisdom with us on the Very Well Mind podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is the part of the show where I'll break down Nathan's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of my favorite strategies Nathan shared. Number one, talk to someone. And Nathan shared how tempting it is to just pretend like everything's fine. But he stresses the importance of talking to someone about what you're going through. I've worked with a lot of caregivers over the years who wanted to be respectful of the person they were caring for by not talking to anyone about the reality of the situation. After all, it might feel like you're being unkind to your loved one if you tell another friend or a family member something like, mom's dementia makes her say mean things. And you might not want to share the physical duties you're doing either by telling somebody that you have to bathe your loved one. But first and foremost, know that it's okay to talk about your experiences. You can do it in a respectful way without betraying your loved one. Remember, you can always share your thoughts and feelings. Those things belong to you, regardless of your caretaking experience. It takes courage to open up to someone, and sometimes it's hard to know how to start a more meaningful conversation if you're used to just keeping things superficial. But take a deep breath and give it a shot. You might just start by saying, I have to tell you, things have been kind of tough lately. You might find opening up to someone else helps. It's something that we discuss on this show a lot, but just telling someone about what you're going through can help you sort things out and start to feel better. And if you know someone else who is a caregiver right now, give them space to talk to you. Invite them to share their experiences and focus on listening without offering advice. Number two, share your story. Nathan also talked about the importance of connecting with other people who can relate to what you're going through. That's one of the joys of the internet. If your loved one's battling a rare disease, you might not know anyone personally who has it. But thanks to the internet, you can probably find someone. There are support groups for caregivers on tons of different subjects. Some are generic to just caregiving, but others are specific to the problem or the situation. It might do you a lot of good to connect with other people. In addition to sharing your story, you can hear other people's stories. You might learn about resources you weren't aware of, or you might find that just knowing you aren't alone is really helpful. And number three, make time for yourself. You've heard this before, but hearing it and doing it are two really different things. So often when we're caring for someone else, we think we don't have time for ourselves or we feel guilty for taking just a few minutes. But it's really important to charge your batteries. We all know that our digital devices need to be charged, but we don't always accept that we need to do the same for ourselves. So I appreciated that Nathan said he wakes up 45 minutes early just to have a little quiet time to himself. Having just a little bit of time to do whatever it is that you want to do, like read the paper, drink a cup of coffee, or just watch your favorite show, can go a long way toward helping your mental health. And when you're feeling at your best, you're better equipped to manage all the responsibilities of being a caregiver. So those are three of Nathan's mental strength building strategies that I highly recommend. Talk to someone, share your story, and make time for yourself. Check out Nathan's podcast, Radioactive Dads, and go watch him on iCarly on Nickelodeon. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.